Today on episode number 745 of the School of Podcasting, stories are more than tales you read in a book because words have power. Because of words, it's how you attract your spouse. It's how you landed your job. It's how you inspire a congregation. Words are how you win the case in court. And today we have the ultimate wordsmith, Matthew Dix, author of the book Storyworthy. Hit it, ladies. The School of Podcasting with Dave Jackson. Podcasting Sense 2005. I'm your award-winning Hall of Fame podcast coach, Dave Jackson, thanking you so much for tuning in. This is why I help you plan, launch, and grow your podcast. My website is schoolofpodcasting.com. Use the coupon code LISTENER when you sign up to save on either a monthly or yearly subscription, or if you want, you can order the courses a la carte. Today, I'm so excited. I have Matthew Dix, who is the author of the book Storyworthy, and you'll hear me say this in a second. It's the book I recommend more than any other book that I've ever read. So without further ado, we're just going to jump right to it. Here's my discussion with Matthew Dix. Well, joining me via Squadcast, and I just thought about this as I was preparing for this, hands down, this man's voice has been in my ears more than anybody else in the year 2020, either listening to his podcast, Speak Up Storytelling, or his audiobook. He's been a teacher for 21 years and a former West Hartford Teacher of the Year and a finalist for the Connecticut Teacher of the Year. That's impressive. But wait, there's more. He's also published in uh, Reader's Digest, the Hartford Current Parents Magazine, the Huffington Post, and the Christian Science Monitor. He's also, because, you know, that's not enough, the co-founder and creative director of Speak Up, which is a Hartford-based storytelling organization. So I highly expect when this gets up, and is it open now? Is it What's the deal with that with COVID at this point? Is it? I'm assuming it's shut down. Well, we're producing shows online right now. So we do virtual shows. But this is the one that's amazing because the first chapter of his book, he talks about how you kind of had to get dragged kicking and screaming to go to your first moth. He's won the moth. Now this is a storytelling contest. He's won it 50 times. Is that, is that up to date or are we up to 51 yet? It's actually 51 now. 51. There you go. He's won that 51 times and he's been a grand champion. So basically picture the playoffs and then you go to the Super Bowl. That's called a grand slam. He's won that six times or are we up to seven? No, six is the number. Okay. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and he's the author of the book, which is why I brought him on today that I recommend more than any other book. I, I like literally on a weekly basis. I just tell buddy, Oh, you need to go listen or read story uh, it's a, a book on its engage, teach, persuade and change your life through the power of storytelling. And you know how people say things like, oh, that guy's the Beatles of cooking or, you know, that's the Beatles of of running. This is the Beatles of storytelling. Matthew Dix, thank you for coming on the show, buddy. I think I should just walk away right now because <laughs> everything that's going to come after this is not going to be as good. <laughs> that's pretty great. Thank you. The thing I love about the book is I've read so many books. You'd see a book on storytelling. And basically the message was stories are good. And you'd read another book and like, you should learn how to tell stories. And I'd read another book. And it was like, and so when I found your book with actual strategies on how to shape a story, I was like, oh, this is, it's like I'd found the Holy Grail. When did you realize that words had power? It's funny when you, when you asked me that question, 
you know, it's always a story, of course. Every answer right. to every question is a story. You know, I was oddly enough, I know the exact date, I guess, that it happened. It was November 30th, 1988. It wasn't in my English class. I was in Mr. Campopiano's English class. And I was a senior getting ready to graduate that year with no future whatsoever. I was getting kicked out of my house by my parents. Not a single human being had ever said the word college to me. So I didn't think that was a possibility. And I was genuinely concerned all year long about where I would be living in June. Like, where would I go? So school wasn't super important to me because it didn't sort of result in any meaningful thing. Fortunately, I liked to learn. I was just a curious person. So I ended up in a class that I actually cared about for a little bit. Mr. Campo's class, he was teaching satire. And I had never heard of satire before, but I was very interested in it. it. Basically, I get to sarcastically make fun of things that I don't like, which really appealed to me. And so I dove into that unit and uh, we had to write satire at the end of the unit. And I did. I wrote what I considered to be the greatest piece of written work in all of American history. That's genuinely how I felt about it when I was 17. I still have it to this day. It's in the file cabinet right beside me right now. I don't share it with anyone, but I do show them the grade. So I handed it to Mr. Campopiano. And on November 30th, he gave it back to me and it was a B minus. And I was really upset. I thought that he was a terrible teacher. I I became convinced that the school district had assigned a fool into our classroom who didn't understand how to evaluate work properly. And so I charged to the front of the room and I let him have it. I told him he was a fool and he's a short, bald man. They tend to come in one of two forms. They're either funny or they're angry. And he's the angry version of short and bald. So he went right back at me. You know, we really were going at it. And finally he said, stop. He said, listen, you read it to the class. If the class thinks it's satire, because he told me it was too obvious, he said, if they think it's satire, I'll make your B minus and A minus. But if they agree with me that it's just too obvious and it's not satirical, then your B minus becomes a C minus, which was a great lesson in education. Really my first teaching lesson ever, which was raise the stakes on kids whenever you can. So of course I said, yes, I'm 17 and I think I'm the greatest thing in the world. So I read it to the class and I'm two sentences in when I hear the first laugh. And it's this girl named Heather, who I basically was in love with forever. And I made her laugh. And it's one of the best sounds I've ever heard in my life. And then pretty soon the whole class was laughing at what I had written as I read through it. It was amazing. And when I finished, Mr. Campo said, raise your hand if you think what Matt has written is satire. And every hand goes up, including Mr. Campos. He says, on the page, it does not read as satire, but you're so sarcastic. The way you perform it, it comes through as satire. So I have it in this file cabinet next to me. It's got a B minus scrawled out, sort of angrily scrawled out. (laughs) And above it, there's an A minus. And that's it for me. Like that's the moment I become a writer and understand that words have power. You know, I make a girl laugh, which is basically why I write today. You know, I publish novels as well. And all of those novels attempt to be slightly amusing in order to hold on to my wife and convince her that I'm still worthy of her love. (laughs) So I make a girl laugh. I make a teacher look like a fool, at least in my mind. You know, I, you don't usually get to tell a teacher he's wrong and then prove it. And he agrees with you that it was astounding to me. But the most important thing that happened to me was I made my B minus into an A minus, which probably doesn't change my grade for the semester. But for a kid with no future, it felt like words had changed my future. Like, wow, I could say stuff to people and I made something change as a result. And so the next Monday I came to school and I started my first business. I started selling term papers to my classmates. I charged $50 for an untyped term paper and $100 for a typed term paper. And with the money I earned, I bought my first car. And that was it. Like, if you want to 
feel like words have power. You make girls laugh. You make teachers look stupid. You get convinced that maybe you can have a future and you get a car. Like that was it. I've written without exaggeration. I've written every single day of my life since that day without exception. I've written through pneumonias and my wedding and the birth of my children. Every single day I have committed words to paper since that day. That, that was the day I came to understand words have power. Yeah. Get 17 with a car. I mean, you can't get much better. That that's you're the king at that point. That's awesome. You really are. Yes. Chevy Malibu, a 1978 Chevy Malibu, 13 years old, but it was a car and it, and it moved. <laughs> uh, well, you talk a lot in your book about how, especially at like, you know, when you go to a moth contest, is that the right phrase? A moth? Is it a, what is it? The moth? It's a story slam competition. That's what we call it. And a lot of the stories, people are being kind of vulnerable. They're sharing things about themselves. Can you do a story and not be vulnerable? Is that like a key ingredient? Like if you can't be vulnerable, eh, this isn't for you? Well, I would say that you can certainly tell stories that aren't vulnerable. But if you plan on only telling stories that lack vulnerability, it's not for you. When I tell stories to my buddies on the golf course about the things that happened two days ago, that's so. That's not always a vulnerable story. Sometimes it's just a an amusing moment that happened to me that I'm now able to convey in an artful way because the crafting and the experience I have. So, you know, whether I'm telling a story that has vulnerability or lacks vulnerability, it's going to come out better because of the experience and the skills that I've developed over time. But I do believe that the stories that people remember, the ones that really mean something to other human beings are the ones that are going to express some vulnerability. They're the hard ones to tell. It's very easy to tell stories in which you look good you are funny, you, you know, you say nice things about yourself. I, I'm never impressed. You know, in fact, you just have to turn on the news and listen to politicians speak highly of themselves. It's it's a simple thing that is done without any effort whatsoever. And I'm never impressed. I, I'm more impressed with the person who's willing to share the thing that most people won't share. And that's what we connect. That's how we connect to people through storytelling. So you have to be able to be vulnerable at times. And the better stories will have vulnerability. Is the connection because... We can identify that or are we? is it, it might be both. Is it also the case where you're kind of pulling for somebody if, if they're really expressing something that's super secret and you just normally, it's, it's a third date discussion is what I usually say. What's, <laughs> what's the magic of, of vulnerability? Why, why do those stories work better, you think, than others? Well, I think for a few reasons. I think one of the primary reasons is that we don't hear them very often in this world. And so what happens to human beings is we go through life thinking that we're the only bad one, mm. that we do something stupid or foolish or shameful, and we feel really rotten about it because we just look around and everyone's sort of curating their lives, particularly today, to look sort of beautiful and, and, and lovely. And so for someone to come along and, and admit to their failures, their embarrassments, their shames, that's just a, it's a different thing that makes people feel better about their own humanity. So I think that is important. I do think it's also recognized as an act of courage. I think it's something that is not easy to do. Now, I, I once had a woman in one of my workshops who's taken a bunch of my workshops and seen me perform. She said to me in a workshop, she said, you're the bravest person I've ever met because you will share everything and anything from your life. And I corrected her. I said, listen, I fully agree that storytellers who do things like I do are exceptionally courageous people, but I am not one of them because in all honesty, it requires no effort for me whatsoever to be vulnerable. For whatever reason, I am wired in such a way that I genuinely don't care sort of what other people think about me. So I've always been willing to share my most shameful, my worst moments. It's just something easy for me. So 
it is courageous to do it and people recognize it as an act of courage from most people. For me, they think I'm being courageous and I allow them to sort of sit in that misconception because it benefits me. But I think that is part of it too. I also think that when you're vulnerable, it's sort of open-hearted. You know, it, it just, it exposes you to the world and it invites people to sort of step in. Whereas if you're telling stories about the time that you did that great thing, I think that's a pushback against the world. It's sort of a, it's an expression of territory, you know, and walls and, and this is who I am. Whereas if you're being vulnerable, all the walls come down and people can sort of get close to you in a way that they can't otherwise. So I think it's a, it's a mixture of all those things that really appeal to people. One of the things that, that I hear the, the voice of Matthew Dix pop out when I'm listening, especially uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of times you talk about the five second rule about where to start your story. And I see so many people that just love to give you mountains of backstory. (laughs) And so how do you decide what stays and what goes and where to start? It's a tricky question. I mean, it's really the ultimate question when it comes to storytelling. You know, when you mention a five second moment, what I'm, what I essentially say is that every good story is about a moment of realization or transformation. And those moments of change take place instantaneously. There's lots of stuff that leads up to them, but ultimately the moment when you shift in terms of changing your mind or really recognizing yourself as a different person than you were a moment ago, it really is instantaneous. It's a five second transformation. And that's what we're always aiming at. So in terms of thinking about what you want to put into your story, what I always say is we're going to serve the story rather than serve ourselves. So I'm going to ask myself what I'm trying to say at the end of the story. What I like to do really is create a thesis statement, which is something to the effect of, I used to think this thing, and then some stuff happened, that's going to be my story, and now I think this thing. And if I create a thesis statement like that for every story that I tell, now I know exactly what goes into the story. Because if it serves the thesis statement, then it belongs. The tricky thing is people often want to share stuff that nobody cares about. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that I want to do, and I just stop myself from doing it because I would prefer to be entertaining than lengthy and boring. You know, it's just an active choice I'm making. But, you know, I was working with someone the other night on one of her, on a story she's telling, and she started describing her grandmother's kitchen. And I said, is the description of the kitchen relevant to the story? And she said, well, it was such a precious place for me. I just want everyone to be able to see it. And I said, I know, but no one actually cares except for you. Like, as much as you care about the preciousness of your grandmother's kitchen, I don't ever care about your grandmother's kitchen. If you just say kitchen, please let me put your grandmother in a kitchen that I already have in my mind and move the story on. If it's not relevant, if the appearance of the kitchen is not relevant. But so many storytellers feel the need to convey all of their truth or they feel the need to describe the thing that's really important to them and they're unable to recognize that nobody else will care about it. And if you want to be a storyteller who is, you know, who is desired and who people want to listen to. If you want to be that person, you genuinely have to be entertaining. It's the first rule of storytelling is you have to entertain people or no one will want to listen to you. And nobody cares about the description of your grandmother's kitchen as much as you love it. Rule number one, don't be boring. Yeah. That would be yeah. And I, I can't remember if it was in one of your podcasts or in the book, but you, you kind of started a half story and you mentioned about how you're really tired and uh, so you you walked into a room, you're super tired and you turn on the light and then grabbed your toothbrush. And just by saying that, I knew you were in the bathroom and I, and because you had this movement going, I are in my, in my head, you had lights on the top. And then you, like the, the, the picture of a bathroom 
came in my head without you saying I walked into the bathroom and it was just this whole, and you talk a lot about this uh, theater of the mind. I just listened to the one chapter where you talked about describing your grandma and one with a, a location and one with her. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, it's my grandmother. And, yeah, and then one was with the the garden. So can you kind of explain about why putting people in a location helps? Yeah, I mean, it's it more than, it does more than help. It changes everything, really. I like what you said, the theater of the mind. I always think of it as we have a mind's eye. When we're storytellers, we're not trying to engage the ocular faculties of our audiences. We're trying to get them to actually stop seeing with the eyes on the outside of their body and to see their mind's eye create a film, a movie inside their head. And in order to do that, one of the best things we can do is we can lean on the power of their imagination rather than the power of our words. It's why I say kitchen instead of describing a kitchen, because if it doesn't matter, I just let you pick the kitchen because you will just pick a kitchen that you are familiar with and you will fill it perfectly with all of the details without me saying a word, which is fantastic for me. It's economy of words, first of all, but even more importantly, it creates a more vivid picture in your mind. You know, people always say, how do you create such such vivid movies in my mind. How do you do it? And if you really pay attention to my stories, I don't like adjectives. I avoid them whenever possible. I like a good hard noun like kitchen because you're going to put something in there. And if the organization of that kitchen is not relevant to the story, I do not care what kitchen you use. Use your own kitchen. Use your your childhood kitchen. Use a kitchen from a television show you watched last night. Whatever. It doesn't matter because you get to fill it in completely. And that's always going to be more complete than what I can create. So when we give a location, it allows us to begin that movie in the mind of our audience. Because if we say something like, my grandmother was so-and-so, I haven't actually given you anything to look at. At best, you're picturing an amorphous grandmother sort of floating on a black screen or, or something like that. But if I tell you my grandmother's standing in the middle of a vegetable garden, I know I just created a movie in your mind. It's starting, at least. And it does things that people can't even begin to imagine. If I say, my grandmother is standing in the middle of a vegetable garden, bent over it and pulling weeds. You have done things like you've picked the season. You picked the weather for the day. You separated sky and land with a horizon. You decided if it was a blue sky or whether it was a cloudy sky. You already pictured my grandmother. Now, you probably put your grandmother or some facsimile of your grandmother in the garden, and that might be okay with me. And if it's not, I'll start to define her a little bit for you. I'll tell you she always wore black every day of her life, and then you'll shift it a little bit, Right. But all of those things, I don't have to say because location, more than anything else, engenders images in the minds of audiences. It's why filmmakers are so focused on location, right? When you're filming a movie, the character is always in a place. There's never a moment where you're thinking, where is Tom Hanks now? He seems to be on a black screen, right? That doesn't happen. We always know where he is. And that grounds the film for us and allows us to even see beyond the edges, Pay attention to that in movies, because that's one of the things we do. If you have a character standing in a kitchen, oddly enough, your mind will fill in the rest of the house. And until they show you the rest of the house, you will actually have an image of what is beyond the screen. That is the power of our imagination. And so that's what I do in storytelling. And it starts by giving a physical location at all times, which is a simple tip to do. And it will change everything about your stories if you do it. Uh, for the person that goes, well... I don't know. I'm kind of boring. I don't really have that much to talk about. Uh, one of the things I loved about the book again is it's strategies and you have all these great strategies to kind of brainstorm with yourself. And one of the things you talk about, and there's a great video, I'll put a link in the show notes to this is called homework for life. Can you kind of explain what homework for life is? Yes. It's probably the most important thing I tell anyone. 
I just did a workshop today for Mercy College, you know, it was three hours long. And I told them, I'm going to tell you about homework for life. And at this point, if you want to leave the Zoom call, everything else I'll say after that will not be as important. I always tell people I would rather hear the right story told poorly than the wrong story told well. And people get obsessed with the wrong stories. They're always looking for the big, exciting, ridiculous moment of their life, which is often the hardest story to tell and oftentimes the less meaningful story for other people. So homework for life is sort of the acknowledgement that our lives are filled with stories. And I'm not special. Thousands of people do homework for life. It's trademarked. The video has been watched you know, tens of thousands of times. I get emails without exception every single day from someone who's doing homework for life and reporting to me that it's changing their life. It's just basically, it's a homework assignment I gave myself initially. I was starting to run out of stories to tell. I had a list and that list was getting short and I didn't want to be the kind of guy who rolled out the same old chestnut every night and, and those guys exist in the world. And so I said to myself at the end of every day, I'm going to ask myself the question, if I was forced to tell a story about something that took place today, even if that story ultimately was not story worthy in any way, even if it was boring and dumb and not worthy of the stage or even my wife hearing it, I'm going to write it down. Now, I don't write the whole story down because that's lunacy. That is a journaler. You know, those are people who like to write immediately after they're broken up with. But as soon as they find love again, they tend not to write anymore in their journals. I don't want it to be something that is onerous. I want it to be like brushing your teeth. Hopefully you don't skip brushing your teeth. You're not going to skip homework for life. So the way I do it is I have an Excel spreadsheet with two columns. It's just a date column. And then I stretch that B column across the screen. And then the B column, that's where I write my story. So I only give myself room for a few sentences. And I'm just looking for moments in my day that are the most meaningful, even if they are ultimately not meaningful. And what happened over time, or at least my goal was to find one new story per month, 12 new stories a year. I thought that would be fantastic. Instead, what happens is I discover all of us, every single one of us, even you, the most boring person in the world, not you particularly, but whoever's <laughs> listening to it and thinking they are extremely boring, everyone has many, many stories to tell. And the problem is, is we don't recognize them. And when we do recognize them, we toss them away like they're trash. What really happens is the best storytellers in the world are self-centered human beings. We tend to spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and not in a bad way. You know, I think, unfortunately, one of the problems in this world is that we're so outward facing, particularly good people. The better you are as a human being, the worse you are as a storyteller, at least initially, because you spend all your time thinking about your kids, your spouse, your colleagues, the world in general, and you don't spend enough time thinking about yourself. Homework for Life is the idea that give yourself permission to actually think about yourself because your life is worth considering and speaking about too. And what happens over time for me and for everyone who does it is we discover that there are stories everywhere, that the things that people say to us and the thoughts that we have and the things that we do contain an infinite number of stories. So my goal of 12 stories a year became a ridiculous goal now because, you know, the list that I currently have of stories that are not crafted, never told, I have to get to them someday. I think it's 683 right now. <laughs> so I've told 120 stories on stages. I have 683 stories waiting to be crafted and told. So I've gone from a guy who didn't have enough stories to tell to a guy who doesn't have enough time to ever tell all of his stories. And it can happen for everyone if you do homework for life. And, and like you said, if you go watch my TED Talk, if you just Google the phrase homework for life, you'll find my TED Talk. And that will give you a lot more information and be very helpful in terms of getting started, but it can change your life. It's the most important thing that you can do for yourself, truly. Well, you, you brought up a, a, a point there. You'd rather, I forget exactly how you said, but you mentioned a, a bad story told well. Is this something like if I 
read your book. I listen to the book, listen to your podcast, and I can see things like, okay, I have to have stakes in the story. I have to have, maybe I'll, I'll do a, I'll make them cry before I make them laugh. Check. Is there a way to create a good story by number, for lack of a better phrase? You know, just <laughs> paint in the pieces and presto instant story. Right. It's not necessary. I actually do a workshop where I take people through a nine-step process. The process that I go through sort of before I even begin crafting the story. The sort of things like I always start with that thesis statement I described, right? So I have to figure out my moment and create a thesis statement. You know, I have to set goals for my story, which is really to say, I think about my story and I think about what I want my audience to feel at certain parts of the story. I make those decisions before I begin crafting and make decisions like where are the surprises in my story? Because I think surprise is the most delightful thing you can offer an audience. And so where are they and how am I going to protect them, preserve them and exploit them throughout the story? So I do all of these things. I, I sort of take this nine step approach. And then when all those questions are answered, then I'm ready to actually start crafting the story, which for me is just speaking it out loud. Most people write it in some way, whether they're outlining it or they're writing it word for word. I only speak my stories and record them. I'm just an auditory learner who, who has always done it this way. Also, I'm lazy. I, I'm a novelist. So, you know, I write my books. I feel like I should be paid for every word I put on the page. <laughs> so to craft a story that I may or may not get paid for someday, if I had to write it, it would feel wrong. But I also know that we write and speak in different ways. And I want my stories to sound like the way I speak and not the way that I write. But so there is a sort of a process that I take people through. It's not necessary. It doesn't apply to every story. It's something that I've always gone through mentally. And I never even considered sharing it with anyone until someone took one of my workshops or was getting ready to take a workshop. She was hosting my workshop. And she said, can you talk about the process? Maybe take us through a process of how to put a story together. And I said, well, I have nine steps. I've never really shared it with anyone. And that is so often the case in my life. I will tell someone something in a, in, in a workshop or in a, in a coaching session. I'll say, the other day, I just told someone, oh, one of the ways we really surprise people is we don't go noun verb. We often go verb or object and we save the noun for last. And I explained to her how that worked in her story. And she's followed me for years. And she goes, I've never heard you say that. And I said, no, I've never really told anyone that, but I do it all the time. And she says, maybe you should tell people that because that's a good tip. So I'm always sort of being told by other people that, hey, the thing you just told me, maybe you should put that in a book. So I'm writing a, a second storytelling book and it's it's getting all the things that I sort of forget to tell people about. So you can do it in steps, but not it's not necessary. I wouldn't obsess with it. I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. And there's tons of that kind of stuff in Storyworthy. I know you, I was laughing because I had listened to the chapter where you talked about how people just put the word and in a story over and over and over. And about that time, my four-year-old great niece came over and told me a story and was like, and we did this and, 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 and I was like, holy cow. And you talked about, and I forget the words, uh, but, and therefore. But and therefore, yeah. yeah. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit on how, yeah, I don't know, it's just one of the things you listen to and you go, yeah, that does work. And it's really not, you're like, how can something so simple make something that much better? Yeah. You know, and I know it works because, you know, I wrote my book and I've been teaching it for years. And then someone pointed it out to me that Matt Stone and Trey Parker of South Park actually use the same principle when putting together their episodes. So I was like, oh, oh I'm so aggravated that they have that idea too. <laughs> You know, it was like when Darwin discovered evolution and someone, some other guy at the same time figured it out simultaneously. <laughs> but it's the idea that when you're telling a story where everything's connected by and, ultimately nothing ends up being important anymore. In an and story, you can often drop a whole thing out and it doesn't really matter because pieces aren't 
linked like a chain. They are not dependent upon each other. When you build stories in which one thing happens, but then a different thing happens, therefore this happens, but then this happens, everything becomes dependent upon everything else. And as a result, everything feels important in a story. So the audience doesn't feel like they're being offered meaningless details or a scene that's just placed in there for the amusement of the storyteller, which is something I have been guilty of from time to time when I suddenly find something that I find funny. It doesn't actually link the story in any way, but just makes me laugh. And my wife often says, that's very, very funny, but it does not belong in your story. And she's right every time. It, It also creates sort of a, I don't know, I like to think it creates an interesting vocal texture to a story. Because if I'm saying this, and then I'm saying this, and then I'm saying this, and then I'm saying this, you can feel how it's sort of flat. Whereas if I say this, but then this happens, therefore this happens, but then this happens, I always visualize it as sort of hills going up and down, which is just much more interesting than the flat and, 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 and. So I'm trying to connect things. And sometimes it's just a matter of the way you say it. You know, I always say in storytelling, what something is not is often more interesting than what something is, right? So rather than saying, I am smart, I would say, I am not dumb. And I actually think that's so much more interesting. If I say, I am not dumb, it sort of presents two possibilities, right? Dumb and not dumb, and I chose one. Whereas if I say, I am smart, it really only offers one possibility. It eliminates dumb right off the table. And I like, I am not dumb much more than I am smart most of the time. Sometimes you want to punch the end of a paragraph with one of those singular statements. But so often I'm looking to say what things are not or the opposite of what things are. And those create those buts. You know, that's an easy way to create buts and therefores is to just restructure your sentence so that it is a, it is a negative sentence rather than a positive sentence. And that'll get you the, the chance to go up or down with a but or a therefore or all the other words, by the way, that are synonymous with but and therefore they're all fine. They're all excellent. I like that. Instead of saying I'm insecure, I can say I don't have an ounce of confidence when I did this. That's so, so much more interesting, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really believe in that. For me as a podcaster, I have certain things that just instantly make me go, uh, they're, you know, okay, here's it's low hanging fruit. That's the good news. Here's the easy thing to fix. But do you have any favorite kind of storytelling pet peeves that you're like, oh, yeah, they did that one. Okay, there people are still doing that. Yep, they're still doing that. Any pet peeves? Yeah. I have a bunch of them. I feel bad saying them because, you know, some of my good storytelling friends are going to hear it, but I'm always willing to share it. So <laughs> I'm a teacher. The worst thing I think that I hear right now that makes me nuts is people open stories with platitudes rather than action, dialogue, and something to engage me. So they'll say something to the effect of, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who, you know, believe that taking chances is a good thing. And there are those people who play it safe. Right. And then, and then they move on with their story. And apparently they're going to be a story who, uh, it's going to be a story about them taking chances at the end of those stories. No one can ever remember the platitude. <laughs> like if I said, what did the story start with? No one ever remembers it. It's always meaningless to the story. Ultimately at best, it gives away something. Oftentimes those stupid platitudes just signal something that is to come. And why would you do that? Why would you steal away any suspense or surprise from your story? It just strikes me as pretentious and stupid and people do it all the time. So that makes me crazy. The other thing that I can't stand is what you sort of described, which is I need to give you a lot of backstory before we begin this story, right? Rather than launching the story. It's not how movies operate. You know, my favorite example is Apollo 13. In order to understand that movie, 
you have to understand 1960s space travel, like the realities of that circumstance. But the movie does not begin with Tom Hanks on a black screen saying, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, before this movie begins, I'd like to speak to you for about 10 minutes on the realities of 1960s space travel so that this movie will make sense to you. But that's how people tell stories all the time. They say, let me tell you something about my mother. And then they go on about their mother. And you wonder, is this a story? Is this a list of characteristics about your mother? Is this an essay about your mother? Apollo 13 launches the story and teaches us what we need to know as the story moves on. And that's what storytellers should do. They need to actually get that story off the ground, on its feet, and moving. And then if you need to tell me something about your mother along the way, please do, if it's relevant to the story. But don't make it the first thing that you said. How about making the first thing you say something that's actually engaging and interesting? Because those first 30 seconds to 60 seconds of a story, that is such fertile ground. That is your opportunity to either convince the audience that what is to come is worth listening to, or I don't know what the hell I'm doing because I've just bored you for 30 to 60 seconds and essentially told you nothing. And most people, not most, many people waste the first 30 to 60 seconds of a story telling us about stuff they think we need to know, when sadly what happens is we just stop listening. So the stuff they thought we needed to know now becomes irrelevant to us because we don't care about anything else they have to say. Now you need something really big to grab their attention back because they're they're looking at their phone by this point. I know... uh, I hear so many podcasters that start off and their first question is, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. And I'm like, would you want me to start? I was a paper boy when I was 12. I mean, where do you, where right. do you want me to start? Well, and the problem is if you had said that to me, I would instantly launch into a captivating story, but that's me. Right. You know, for me, that question might work because that just really says, Matt, tell us something interesting about you. And I'll say, well, here's my latest story. I'll tell you that. But for most people, that is not helpful at all. You know, there's a game I play in storytelling three, two, one. It's a game that sort of acknowledges that wide nets are not good for storytelling. It's a game where um, I use a website all the time called perchance.org slash object. It's a random object generator. And so whenever I'm in a meeting where suddenly I realize I don't really need to be here, except I'm required to be here, I go to this website and uh, I put in the number three. So it'll generate three random objects for me. And from those three random objects, I force myself to come up with a story from my life using one of those objects. What it does is it acknowledges the idea that when we look at our lives through a pinprick, a laser-like focus, if I look at, you know, today I did it in a workshop for that college, and I ended up with like safety pin and tacos and rosebush, right? So I have to look at my life through those three objects, that lens of those three things. You'll always come up with a story. Now, we acknowledge in this case, a story could be a 20-second anecdote that might become the brick of a story someday, or it could become a 20-minute masterpiece. Either way, it's so much easier to look at your life through that simple lens rather than saying, tell me a story about love. That would be a really hard thing for people to do. The net is so wide. It's the same thing as the question, tell me something about yourself. Way too wide, right? But if I said, listen, I want to hear a story from you, and it has to be related to either a safety pin, a rose bush, or a what I said, tacos, right? Mm. You would be able to do it. You would legitimately be able to do it. It might not be super entertaining. It might only be 20 seconds long, but it allows you to look at your life in a way that you didn't look at it a minute ago. And that always generates stories for me. It also allows you to practice the skills that I teach and to speak extemporaneously. And I'll tell you, I have a taco story that is probably worthy of a moth stage someday that I found today. 
I have a great rosebush story that I had forgotten until today that popped up. I did not have a safety pin story. But if I had to fight long enough and hard enough, I guarantee you I could find something to say about a safety pin at some point in my life. So I agree with you. Our questions that we ask people like in a podcast, the more specific they are, the more helpful they are to our guests. But I think that's counterintuitive to what most people think, because most people will think if I give them something too specific, they won't know what to do with it. That's not really true. If you give them something too general, they don't know what to do with it. Specificity is your friend when it comes to interviewing. Because the worst they can say is, I really have nothing to say about that. And then you just ask a different question and you edit out the one that didn't work out. Absolutely. Speaking of podcasting, when did you know, you know what, the storytelling thing would work good as a podcast and you started speak up storytelling? What, uh, when did you think, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to rope my wife into this. We're going <laughs> to sit down at the, the table and, and spit out a podcast. Well, I knew it a long time ago, long before the storytelling podcast came to be. I did another podcast prior to uh, Speak Up Storytelling. It's called Boy Versus Girl. There's about 100 episodes that you can go listen to. It's me and a sociologist basically arguing over gender issues. I had great fun doing it. Part of my sort of you know motive in putting together that podcast was the acknowledgement in my head that someday I'm going to do a storytelling podcast. I'm hoping that Alicia will do it with me, but if not, I'm going to do it on my own. But I want it to be right. Like I want to have an understanding of the medium and the equipment and all of that. So I'm going to do do this other podcast with this other person who's really interesting. And we'll put out some, you know, we'll, we'll do 100 episodes and I will get the expertise that I want so that when it comes time to do the thing that I really care about, I'll be better prepared. I mean, I probably knew 10 years ago because I've been listening to podcasts from the moment they became invented. I was listening to podcasts. You know, my wife... The headphones that perpetually live on my head make my wife crazy, but it's either a book or it's a podcast that I'm listening to if someone's not speaking to me at all times. And so uh, there's so many family photos with Matt with headphones in the background, you know, just sitting on top of his hat or on top of his head because they're just always there. Yeah. So I knew for a long time that I wanted to do this, but. Do you have anything that whether it's really, I'll just leave it open. Anything that's happened to you that wouldn't have happened except you had a podcast. The list is endless. Mm. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll give you a few examples. Today, I was teaching a workshop at Mercy College because folks at Mercy College stumbled upon my podcast, listened to it, and decided to bring me in. You know, I was speaking to an attorney in Portland today. I'm going to go do something for the Portland Bar Association because he is a fan of the podcast, and he can, became convinced that I could help attorneys through listening to me speak about storytelling. I've made friends all over the country you know, I, I do the podcast and then I mentioned I'm teaching workshops and then I put it out and now into Zoom. I, you know, I thought it was going to be a horrible situation during this pandemic to have to teach online. And in some ways it's not great, but my first workshop I put out online, I ended up with a person from Singapore, a person from Australia, you know, a person in Atlanta, a person in Seattle. And, you know, I've been with those people, like some of those people for months and months. And through storytelling, what happens is you get close really fast. And so, although I've never met many of these people in person, they are genuinely my friends. Yesterday, we had a package arrive from Singapore, actually, from our friend Anna, which was books for our kids and books and puzzles for us, just spontaneously sent to us because we've gotten close to her. She's been in our show. I've been in her show. And we're friendly because of it. We're, we're very friendly. Last summer, we went to Seattle to visit a friend, and we knew storytelling people in Seattle because they listened to our podcast. And so they invited us to some of their shows, and one of them was a Sunday brunch storytelling event. My agent, my literary agent actually was at the event as well. She was, she's become involved in storytelling through me and through the podcast 
she connected with these people as well. So there was about 50 people in this person's house. People were getting up and telling stories. They were pulling names from a hat. And they had had me come in to sort of be like a, a person who was definitely going to tell a story that day. But I remember I was smearing a bagel with cream cheese when I heard the name Clara pulled from the hat. And I thought, that's funny. Someone else has the name Clara, not just my daughter here. No, it was my daughter. She had gone up, 10 years old, never told a story in her life, put her name in the hat without telling us. And then she's standing in front of 50 people telling a brilliant story, a genuinely, authentically, brilliantly crafted story that wowed everyone. And the only sad thing I have is I didn't record it because she never told us it was going to happen. I mean, part of it is great that I didn't have to like sort of worry about framing it. I got to enjoy it for exactly what it was. That never would have happened if I didn't have a podcast. I wouldn't have been in that person's living room. Clara wouldn't have put her name in the hat. She wouldn't have considered herself a storyteller now. I asked her later, how did you do that? Like, how did you figure out how to put the story together? And she says, dad, I hear you all the time. Do you think I don't learn from listening to you? So that's just the tip of the iceberg of amazing things and amazing people and amazing places I've been able to go because of the podcast. It's been a wonderful thing. That's uh, wow. Is it even possible to describe the feelings of the proud Papa watching his daughter do that? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting because it's a thing that I do and it's not a thing that a lot of people do, you know, like, My son, Charlie, is playing baseball. He's actually playing poker right now with me. I taught him how to play poker, and he's really good at it. (laughs) But I feel like baseball and poker are things he would have done already anyway. You know what I mean? Growing up, he was going to play baseball, whether or not his dad had played baseball. And he's probably going to play poker at some point with his buddies, whether I taught him or not. You know, I'm happy it's happening. But storytelling is not something that is just going to automatically be something people do, particularly publicly in, in a show. So the fact that my daughter now thinks of herself as a storyteller, really because her father is a storyteller, you know, would not have happened if we weren't father and daughter. That's what makes it amazing is is the fact that I can really think about how she's taken on something that I do that is unique in a way. I mean, there's lots of storytellers in the world, but there's really not that many storytellers in the world, you know, at the same time, whereas baseball players are a dime a dozen. So that's what's been really special about it. You mentioned now you're doing, it, it's kind of the, I don't know. I guess the bright side of COVID is you're now doing these workshops online. If somebody wants to sign up for those, where's the best place to go? Uh, They can go to speakupstorytelling.com or matthewdix.com. You can find them both there. I mean, it is a blessing. It's a silver lining that's, you know, that's happened. The tricky thing for people, if they want to attend these workshops, is they fill up instantaneously. Because it used to be you had to come to Connecticut to see me. And people did it. I had people from China flying to Connecticut to take my workshops, which I don't like. Like the level of pressure and knowing someone came from China to see me, I was like, this is not good. Go back to China. What are you doing here? You know, what if I'm not good today? But because now the world is essentially my audience and everyone can come to Connecticut virtually, uh, the workshops fill up. So I actually get emails all the time from angry people because somehow they feel I'm obligated to offer enough workshops so that they can take one. So if I put out a workshop and they say, I couldn't sign up. It filled up too quickly. What are you doing? Why don't you have another one? I I keep pointing out, I'm not a public service. You know, I'm not like the bus that has to come every hour. Like, I just get to do as much as I want. And if you're not quick enough, I'm sorry. Like, buy my book, listen to my podcast. There's a lot of instruction there for you. And 
And be quick next time. I know there's people who have my name as a Google alert. They've set up my name as a Google <laughs> alert so that when I post things, they instantaneously can run to it. So, so if they want to take a workshop, I'd be thrilled to have you, but you got to jump on it quickly right now because it's a, I think partially it's COVID and people need to find something to do. Well, and you do have that thing, you know, that husband thing you do and the teaching thing you do and the author thing you do and everything else that you do. So it's, you know, you got to got to keep some time in there for sleep and maybe eating every now and then, things like that. Staying with my children, you know, <laughs> spending time with my wife. Yeah, it is very true. I mean, honestly, you know, I could probably I could just do workshops and um, it would wear me out. Honestly, I it's weird to say that, but it's it's less tiring to write a novel or even go teach 10 year olds than it is to sit for two hours and listen to people be exceptionally vulnerable with me. And, you know, not that I don't love doing it, but there's a limit to how much I can do in a day or in a week. I'm almost always anxious to hear a story. And I think you also offer, if somebody has a story and they kind of want you to punch it up a bit or give, that's also a service you offer. Yeah. I do coaching a ton. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I just disappointed someone cause someone just booked a coaching session with me. And uh, I had to book her nine weeks out because that's how far out I'm booking people. So, yeah, there's lots of people who uh, are anxious to tell stories for themselves or for business or, you know, I, I work with attorneys and uh, priests, ministers and rabbis. I do storytelling for dating, which is crazy, but true. I just did Santa Clauses uh, a while back, a bunch of Santa Clauses who, who needed storytelling. You know, I was in Canada last year on a Native American reservation, a Mohawk reservation, teaching Native Americans who are learning to speak their native language, teaching them to tell stories so that they could say interesting things in the language that they were learning. Like it's taken me to crazy places, but what's happened is everyone is figuring out that being able to tell a good story is an important thing, whether you're a documentarian or an advertising company or a Fortune 500 company, all these people I'm working with constantly. So it's been great. You never know what's going to happen when you put your words out there. So uh, it's not even storytelling. Sometimes I teach people what they should say. It's the idea of when you meet someone for the first time, what are the things that you can say that will connect yourself to human beings and what won't? I'm always strategic. You know, I play golf all the time and there's always a new person who's joining our threesome, you know, if we don't have a fourth guy. And every time you meet a new person, it's an opportunity to possibly make a connection, you know, either a friendly connection, a profitable connection, it'll open doors. And so I'm always strategic about what I say and how I share. And I teach people just to do that. So for interviewing, you know, the first five minutes of an interview are really important. And I just like a story, the first 30 seconds to 60 seconds. And I think people waste that time. I think you get hired in the first five minutes. A lot of times I really believe that I used to hire people all the time. I mean, I used to work in restaurants. I've actually helped to hire teachers in our school. I know in five minutes if I'm hiring the person. And so that five minutes is critical so often to people and it's not ground that people use wisely. So I'm glad that it helped. I'm really glad it helped. It's a, it's a useful skill in many ways. And I always feel, what's the word here? I feel bad for your other books because I love story worthy so much. If somebody, for whatever reason, because look, if you buy story worthy and you don't like it, you're insane. I will buy it back from you basically. I'll, Cause I know somebody else who would want it. Tell us a little bit about your other books and what I know some of them are different topics and such. So. Yeah, well, they're all fiction. I, I started as a novelist. You know, they're all sort of very different from each other, which makes them a little tricky to, to talk about. They're essentially stories that tend to be slightly amusing until they make you cry at the end, which is, you know, sort of the way I tell stories too. They tend to be about people who are on the margins of life. I'm sort of obsessed with the idea that we tell kids 
to blaze their own trail, to do their own thing, to, to be unlike their peers, you know, be themselves. But what happens is if you're an adult who actually follows those rules, you're often punished. Because if you actually blaze your own trail as an adult, you often end up on a fringe, you know, if you don't conform. And so I write about people who are sort of brave enough to be different in the struggles they have. So my first novel is about, it's about a burglar who breaks into homes and steals only things that go unnoticed. And so he comes back to your home again and again, you become his client. And over time, he becomes attached to you. You know, he starts to care about you. And he starts to understand that he can sort of help your life quietly as sort of a guardian angel behind the scenes, but it puts him at risk. So like, that's that book. The last book I wrote was 21 Truths About Love. It's actually a book written entirely in lists. It's a novel, but it is only list after list after list. It's the lists of an obsessive list maker. And through that story, you discover the story of this man and his life and his struggles. And, you know, he's really, he's dealing with a lot of secrets that he's not willing to share with his wife, some economic and some personal things, but it's just a series of lists that was accidentally written during faculty meetings that I didn't believe I needed to be at. So I started writing amusing lists for my colleagues that eventually became a book that, you know, now is in bookstores. So they're all in between, you know, sort of those ranges, but essentially they're, you know, my agent says they're quirky, which is to say they're slightly amusing, but not comic. And they're sort of heartfelt, you know, they might be like dramedies and, and they're great. I just, they're doing well for me. You know, they're all out in bookstores now, and I have another one coming out in January. Nice. Well, Matthew Dix, thank you so much. I am uh, I'm just honored that you're here. You, you knocked it out of the park as I knew you would. If you ever need any help with podcasting, you've, you've got a friend right here that can, can help you with that stuff. So thank I, you so much. I actually need some help. So, you know, maybe once once we go offline, I have an actual podcasting equipment question for you that's torturing me for years. So um, I just realized maybe you can solve my problem. So I, I will take advantage of that. But it was an honor to be here. Always an honor to talk about storytelling. It's the easiest and the happiest thing for me to talk about. So I really appreciate it. There you go. That is me checking off a bucket list item. It's I, I cannot tell you how great this book is. Even if you're not doing storytelling, you are kind of doing doing storytelling all the time. And I just love the fact that what he does is he has these stories and what's great is he will tell them. And then about three chapters later, he will reveal more about it. He's always revealing how he shaped it. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, wow, this is what he started with. And now I know how he ended up with it. It's really, really amazing stuff. So check him out. MatthewDix.com. I'll have links to everything out at school of podcasting.com slash seven, four, five. A couple things that jumped out at me when we talked about editing. He said, I'd rather be entertaining than lengthy and boring. I think about what my audience, what I want them to feel at certain parts of the story. I make those decisions before I even begin crafting the story. And then when we're talking again about grabbing people's attentions, he said, uh, how about making the first thing you say something that's actually engaging and interesting because those first 30 seconds to 60 seconds of a story, that is such fertile ground. That is your opportunity to either convince the audience that what is to come is worth listening to or I don't know what the hell I'm doing <laughs> because I've just bored you for 30 to 60 seconds and essentially told you nothing. I love that. And you might be wondering, Dave, did you solve Matthew's problem? 
And as a matter of fact, I did. And that is a great segue to get you to subscribe to the show. If you go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash subscribe, you will get the next episode the minute it is ready. And the next episode is going to be how to troubleshoot your podcast. I have to go back and look and see if I talked about this, but I know it's a, a topic that uh, it's it's good to know. It's kind of like how to change a tire. You need to know how to do that if you're going to drive a car. And I've got a couple examples of troubleshooting that were really weird and you go, oh, yeah, but I was able to uh, help Matthew with that. And speaking of great books, if you would like to make money with your podcast, my book is out now. Profit from your podcast. You can find that at profitfromyourpodcast.com. And if you're like, Dave, I don't even have a podcast yet. Well, of course, what's the name of this podcast? School of Podcasting, where I help you plan, launch, and grow your podcast. Go out to schoolofpodcasting.com slash join. Use the coupon code LISTENER and save 20%. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. Until next week, class is dismissed.